Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. The Incomparable. Number 650. January 2023. Welcome back to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and... Oh, wait. No. I'm tearing off my trademark Mission Impossible face mask to reveal that I am, in fact, David J. Lore. Tonight, we're drafting a dossier of spies, secret agents, and even con artists, because they may come in handy too sometimes. You know, it's hard to tell the difference, because sometimes it takes a thief. Now, to introduce our rogues gallery in the order in which they will draft. Our first guest is a man with a camera, looking nonchalant while photographing the landscape. Or is he photographing a dead drop across the park? It's Tom McGrath. So are we not doing phrasing anymore? Oh, good question. Good question. We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Our next guest is going to push it, like James Bond in a haystack at a horse farm in Kentucky. File it, like Jaws, sharpening his teeth. Oh, dear God, Glenn Weldon was right. I am not doing the whole preamble. It's the co-host of A Degree Absolute, Chris Klimek. Hi, thanks. Yeah, I, I still have to check the order of uh, of the verbs. Uh, the, the, <laughs> I, I tried to correct Glenn this week when he said file was the, the second one, which which it is. And you'd think that uh, after, you know, 50 episodes. <laughs> no, but um, I still need to check my script. <laughs> And I will thank our last panelist to come through the studded leather door already and leave poor Money Penny alone. Welcome, Nathan Alderman. Do you expect me to talk, David? No, I expect you to draft. So we'll begin our draft. It's it's a small group, but we've got a lot of things to draft because spies, secret agents, con artists, that's, that's a wide open field. Uh, so I think for our first round, we'll start with TV spies and secret agents. Um, there, that it, it certainly was a, a trend in the '60s, and it comes and goes. It ebbs and flows. Um, there are some classic ones, and if you pick a TV series that's been turned into a film, that's okay. The films usually are a little different. So I'm, they, I'm I have I have one thing in particular that I'm thinking. Yeah, the films are a separate thing. Um, so let's start with Tom. What, what's your first pick? With the first pick, I'm going to go with Archer. I'm glad we stuck with the TV shows. Ah, to begin very with. good. Because um, not only does it, I mean, the thing that Archer does really well, I think, that's unique to its medium is that it really plays a lot with motif and style, too. So it wasn't, it's not just a spy show. It's also a con artist show. I mean, they're basically right. con artists. And then... You can go through Miami Vice and like Commando and 
any of the other sort of Magnum PI genre spies and private eyes. Um, it's kind of got something for everybody. And it is filthy, which is also oh, fun. Yes. Always good. Uh, and it's got a killer theme song. That's that's kind of a, a good thing for a secret agent. There's yeah, you're gonna, th- I'm hoping that that's going to be thematic to my picks, but we'll see. Ooh, ooh, mm, okay. I think I, I watched up through the season where they become drug dealers, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it's not that it, I disliked it or anything. I just, you know, I sort of wandered away, but I'll come back someday. I, I enjoy a good phrasing as much as the next guy. So you missed the <laughs> season where they there it it was all a dream or it was all a coma situation. There aren't there like three whole seasons of the show where it's, it's a coma. Gotta be minimum. Uh, I mean, one was a, like a, an extended cannonball run parody or um, not cannonball run. What's uh, some other. Um, Reynolds, um, <laughs> 70, oh, yes. Uh, Smoking the bandits. Smoking the yeah. bandits. There's a whole season that it was. Yeah. I, I mean, to, to carry that, that gag through how many episodes uh impressive there was no horse left to beat <laughs> degree of difficulty uh you know, yeah and plus yeah it's it's one of those shows i i come back and forth on it like i i binge a bunch of it and yeah. then i just i have to walk away for a year or two <laughs> but then there's a lot more to binge it's it's convenient um let's move on to our our next our next guest chris what is your first tv pick well, um, I hate to preempt you, but I think from the the hints you were dropping, David, about how sometimes the the <laughs> movies are radically different from the TV show. I'm sorry that I have to steal the Avengers from you. I'm sure. You were oh, talking. oh, yeah. Well, ninety-eight uh, <laughs> feature version of the Avengers that I saw in an empty theater. Um, <gasps> so and, did I. <laughs> you know, supposedly, I, I actually googled Jeremiah Chechik, the uh, Benny and June director who made that film, and I. I I thought it had ended his career and I, I, it turns out it only ended his career as a, a feature filmmaker. You know, he went to HBO or something and was, was able to carry on doing meaningful work um, <laughs> you know, from, from, I don't know, correspondence courses in, in movie jail or something. Um, no, I, I, I love the Avengers, which I, I came to through um, Grant Morrison's comic book version in the uh, same way I found the prisoner oh. is that, you know, around the same era, DC comics published a, an authorized sequel to the prisoner back when that show was only 20 years in the past. And um, Grant Morrison wrote a, a series called Steed and Mrs. Peel. Um, and I, I saw an interview with him in comic scene or someplace talking about the TV show, which was unfamiliar to me at that time, but I think a and E maybe was, was uh, rerunning it in the, the early nineties. And I was just so charmed by this um, surreal sort of Lewis Carroll kind of uh, fantasy. It, it, uh, you know, invariably uh, our two leads, um, Patrick McNeese, John Steed. And um, it, it was the, the Diana Rigg, Emma Peel era where I came in and, you know, which I still, still favor though. He had um, other, other partners, of course. Um invariably described as spies and um that throws me a little bit because uh they never conceal their identities or rarely do um you know they seem never to leave england um they seem to go about their investigations very publicly <laughs> uh, <laughs> in this this weirdly depopulated uh uh you know post-war england that they inhabit i i wouldn't really describe anything that they do as as uh, espionage or tradecraft or or spycraft i I mean, they they uh, 
seem to just go up to people and ask questions. They're they're detectives with with better clothes. Yeah, they really yeah. are. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So so that's um, yeah. Sorry to sorry to take it from you. I I know that that uh, many oh. people come to this through the you know long running Avengers film series. Very <laughs> fine. Just seems determined to kill himself doing um, a, a wild new stunt every time they have a new one. But oh um, my goodness, yeah. Uh, I remember seeing that opening weekend because I I grew up on the Avengers in the early 80s and it hit that mental tickle spot for me. And now here's here's a strange thing. So, yes, it was on A&E in the 90s and into the 2000s, I think. Um, At the time when I found it, it was really hard to find. And then apropos of, you know, it had nothing to do with anything else on the network. It ran on MSG TV in in the New York area, uh, Madison Square Garden. So you'd finish wow. a Nick a Knicks game, and there was the Avengers at midnight every night, and it made no sense to me. It was the only thing I watched on MSG, but I watched it whenever I could. That seems like a great midnight show. <laughs> oh yeah, and and just stripping five nights a week. Oh my god, yeah, it's it's terrific. And and so yes, I I went to see the film i was also in an empty theater i was tempted to leave it completely empty at one point i, I you know as, as films with uh, sean connery uh, speaking recognizably as sean connery wearing a giant teddy bear costume go um you could do worse the the funny thing is um not only did it not kill jeremiah chechik's career uh he went on to direct i think most of the episodes of the middleman which was a single season show on ABC Family, which was not the right place for it, but a, a show based on a comic book series that really catches that Avengers style. It's much more like the Avengers than his Avengers film. Nathan, what is your first TV pick? Well, I am deeply saddened that the Avengers got sniped. Uh, you know, I, I was going to wax rhapsodic about that moment in every episode when Diana Rigg gets, and I'm going to imagine capital letters here, that look on her face. And I would always sit back on the couch and say, oh, son, you done bleeped with Emma Peel. Uh, and then she would <laughs> unleash hell. But instead, I'm going to change from from whimsy and surrealism to um Gritty, bone-dead realism um, and the most depressing 1970s fashions, if you can, if that's not an oxymoron that you can imagine. I'm going to go with Neil Burnside, uh, from, as played by the great Roy Marsden, from a British oh, series yes. called The Sandbaggers, uh, created by a former Royal Navy and intelligence officer named Ian McIntosh. Um, an incredible three-season wonder from British television that ended only because the creator vanished in a small plane over a bay in Alaska and was never heard from again, which is a pretty pretty metal way to go out if you're an ex-spy. Um, but The Sandbaggers is a grim, um, plodding, very dark show that mostly consists of men in terrible suits having conversations in either sets that look like they were built from cardboard or the most depressing 1970s British McDonald's you can imagine. And it is absolutely riveting. Um, they managed to wring completely nail-biting suspense out of these simple conversations between men in rooms. There's very little action. There's some, but most of it is what's going on back at headquarters. And it, the show it reminds me the most of, actually, is Andor, 
which just aired on Disney Plus, uh, which has that same gripping moment to moment fascination, the same morally complex characters. And Neil Burnside is he's the head spy. He's one of only two characters that survives throughout the entire series, because boy, does this series have a body count. But he is a mean, nasty, awful SOB, a miserable human being um, and just deep. No one hates Neil Burnside more than Neil Burnside hates Neil Burnside. But he does the the hard, unpleasant and occasionally downright shocking things to uh, to keep Britain safe during the Cold War. Um, it was written because Macintosh was tired of these fanciful larger than life spy stories and wanted to show people what it was really like. And uh, if you ever get a chance to see it, I think it is on T-U-B-I, Tubi, the random streaming service you may or may not have heard of. But if you get a chance, if you like old school, you know, lean to the bone, gritty spy drama, give the sandbaggers a chance. You will not regret it. Oh, absolutely. I, I can second that. I, I remember discovering that, I think, on WHYY, the PBS station in Philadelphia back in the late 80s. And and going, what in God's name is this? This is grim. Um, but yeah, it's it's really good. I think it was an influence on Greg Rucka's comic series, um, yes, Queen and Country, yes, which is similarly uh, grim and intense. Um, and I I wouldn't be surprised if it influenced a certain incomparable author in his Galactic Cold War series. Well, um, I was thinking of another incomparable author in his oh, uh, coldest city. Uh, certainly, certainly. Um, well, my first pick, um, I'm going to go with something that covers both spies and con artists. Uh, I'm going to go with Mission Impossible, but the TV version. Uh, because it's a very different beast from the movies. Uh, the movies are terrific, especially now that Chris McQuarrie is writing and directing all of them. But the TV series is a very different beast. It's, it is much more like a con artist game. Uh, usually they have to convince someone to incriminate themselves or uh, convince them to give up the ghost on something, uh, whether it's a, a device or a, a MacGuffin of whatever. Uh, and they use their face masks. They use gadgetry. They use uh, acting and improvisation. Um, it's it's not like this running from country to country and performing ridiculous stunts like Tom Cruise. Uh, so I, so I, that's why I say the film versions are still out there on the board if you would like to pick them. Uh, but yeah, Mission Impossible, again, an amazing theme song. Uh, a song that has been an earworm pretty much all my life. And I was, and I was born when it was still on the air. So, um, anyway, let's, let's circle back around now. Let's, uh, let's do a round of films if we can, uh, Tom, what would be your first film pick? My first film pick is going to break from my theme song problem because I don't recall the theme song to Charlie Wilson's war. Ah, uh, but I think I might be one of like four people on the planet who really wished they had Charlie Wilson's war on DVD. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is unbelievable in it. And mm. I think it's worth the, it's worth a rewatch just for that, just for him alone. And he's the 
the spy in question. Um, Tom Hanks is Tom Hanksing all over the place, and it's a it's a, a Aaron Sorkin joint. So you know, cocaine. But um, <laughs> and, so much walking, so much talking. And he quotes from himself incessantly. My favorite part was in the I saw it in the theater because that's who I am, and there is a West Wing episode called the Indians in the lobby. And in Charlie Wilson's war, Charlie Wilson is leaving his office. And in the lobby are a number of native American people waiting for him. And I was like, Oh, it's Indians in the lobby. And my date at the time was like, what the, what are you talking about? And I was like, (laughs) okay, so you got to understand. Well, okay. I'm going to have to tell you when when this is over. And I don't think we dated very long after that, but, I don't know if those two things are related or not, but as a spies in a spy in the CIA, like the internal machinations of the CIA kind of movie, it does the job. And it's a unflattering section of American spycraft as we decide that we're going to arm the Mujahideen, which um, went fine. <laughs> forever and then nothing happened so um as a historical as a piece of actual history i i think it's pretty successful as well yeah it's it's a fascinating book and and it is a true story yeah um the book is really good as well yes and it's it's also mike nichols mike nicholsing up the place that's right he is mike nicholsing all over that (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah no i i can i highly recommend charlie wilson's war uh, Chris, what is your next film pick or first film uh, pick? I should say. Well, these are uh, these are con artists. Sorry, they're they're not spies. Um, they're even less spies than than John Steed and and Emma Peel are. Um, they 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 are uh, Eddie Hawkins and and Tommy Five Tone Messina, who's you know many many extended adventures and um, multi format franchise uh, extended universe. Uh, Continuing saga, et cetera, et cetera, uh, began with Hudson Hawk in in 1991. Such a a smash sensation that um, you know you just just couldn't keep it down. Um, I love this movie. I unironically love this movie. It's not. A, I I truly am baffled by I, how this thing has such a, a a reputation as as such a such a train wreck. Um, I mean, it's it's certainly you know Bruce Willis uh, at at the moment in his career when when no one could tell him no, but he's he's surrounded by you know you got the uh, the director of Heather's coming off of uh, directly off of that film, um, tons of character actors in in this this flick who uh, I like um, David Caruso in a silent role, which. Um, you know, I think he's pretty great in our villains are Sandra Bernhard and, and Richard E. Grant. Uh, we we have a, a character who plays the less talented, uh, less successful brother of a very famous gangster. Um, cast in that part is one Frank Stallone. Um, James Coburn is is basically doing his his uh, our man Flint uh, uh, role again in in this movie. Um, the plot concerns a a cat burglar who's just been released in prison who is immediately blackmailed by his his crooked parole officer into committing some heists for him, and it you know turns out they they need to um, steal a bunch of uh, famous art objects in which Leonardo da Vinci has hidden the the disassembled components of his alchemy machine. Um, I think the reason I love it though is uh that uh Hawk and uh and Tommy played by Danny Aiello 
they they time their burglaries by by singing. Um, you know, you could just look at a watch or something. You know, they they know what the police response time is. They know how how much uh, time they're likely to have in a a burglary site before they're going to be interrupted. And uh, in this universe, the only way they can possibly keep track of time is to choose a song of the appropriate length and then sing it separately um, while they're they're committing their jobs. And uh, I I love that. Um, I don't know why this this movie is so loathed. <laughs> really, <laughs> it's so strange. Uh, but it, it it never drags. It is a fleet ninety five minutes long, and um, love it. So it's so it's really you know my my abiding affection, my unapologetic, unironic, and endless love for for Hudson Hawk that has me shoehorning it in here by by picking the <laughs> at burglar duo of Eddie the Hawk Hawkins and Tommy Five Tone Messina as uh, a pair of sleeves sleeves a pair of sleeves a pair of <laughs> thieves slash con artists david it it takes a sleeve mm-hmm. um yeah i i saw it opening weekend and uh it that's a great pick because they are con artists but the film itself feels like it's a spoof of a bond film i mean the villains are totally bond villains uh, they're rich. They're looking for an insane device. They want to rule the world. Um, this thing jumps from New York to Italy and the Vatican. I, I mean, it's yeah, but all the, right, but all but, all on location, right? I mean, that's that's yeah. part of why this film was such a a, a financial disaster because <laughs> they <laughs> spared no expense. <laughs> and and I love that it's narrated by William Conrad as if it's a Rocky and Bullwinkle, oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> That is just such a random detail. Uh, oh yeah, no, I. As soon as it came out on Blu-ray, I got the Blu-ray. So, you know, you bought the other um, one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, Hudson Hawk, great pick. Uh, Nathan, what is your first film pick? My first film pick is a film that I actually just recently saw for the first time after snapping it up on sale on iTunes. Uh, since I saw it in the theater in 2011 when it came out. And that is, uh, I'm picking Hannah Heller from Joe Wright's uh, 2011 film Hannah, which is a uh, it, basically the the uh, the elevator pitch is what if Little Red Riding Hood was the born identity? It is a <laughs> uh, fairy tale told as a spy thriller about a very strange and and uh, and talented, shall we say, uh, young woman who's been raised by her uh, her gruff woodsman father in the remote uh, Arctic wilderness. Until the day he gives her a magic box that uh, grants her wish to become a real girl by being abducted by the U.S. military uh, and uh, pursued across Europe by a terrifying Kate Blanchett and her preoccupation with her own dental health. My, what big teeth you have. Um, <laughs> it is a weird, beautiful movie. Um shot very stylishly and very excitingly, but always with an eye for beauty, even in the action scenes. Um, Saoirse Ronan gives a tremendous performance, both physically. I mean, she's whomping on guys twice her size, but also as this person who's been tremendously sheltered her whole life uh, has some, shall we say, natural disadvantages toward fitting in with the rest of humanity, um, but is still very much curious and yearning to be a whole person rather than just a target. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, Kate Blanchett shows up for anything. She'll take a paycheck. So, you know, when, when she shows up, it's, it's not a mark of quality. No, I'm kidding. She's fantastic <laughs> in this movie. There is a, a scene where she 
just a split second scene where she slowly smiles and your blood freezes in your veins. And there's an amazing one-er shot where Eric Bana walks off a bus in Germany through the bus station down into the metro, is attacked by four guys, makes short work of them and walks off all in a single continuous shot. There's a killer score by the Chemical Brothers that is trippy as all get out. And you get to see to watch Saoirse Ronan break Michelle Dockery's neck, uh, which is something you'll never see on Downton Abbey. Um, so cannot recommend if you haven't seen it. I can't recommend highly enough. Hana, the weird, dark, utterly pitiless, totally beautiful um, Joe Wright stab at a, a spy thriller by way of fairy tales. Yeah, it is. A, it, it's a tremendous film. And, and you're right. It is beautiful to look at. Gosh, my, my first film pick, I think I have to go for my favorite con artist pick, my favorite heist pick, uh, the George Clooney Ocean's Eleven, uh, which probably will not shock regular listeners. Um, and I like the sequels too, but the, but the original, the original, I could watch over and over again. It is so meticulously plotted and it's it's just smart and I, uh coolness is not something that i really worry about or look for in a film but this is a film that is effortlessly cool um one of my favorite line readings of all uh is george clooney just saying you think we need 11 you think we need 11 all right we'll get 11 and the whole time brad pitt is just staring uh, it's it's one of the simplest little scenes, and yet I it, I just love it. Uh, but the the other the other reason I love it is in modern times it's really hard to come up with a good heist because of technology. You know, they came up with a really high tech heist that worked. Uh, so that's that's pretty good. Um, do, Ian do Brad Pitt I, don't sing though. They don't, you know, they don't. They sing don't sing hard no. to like time out the the robbery. So you got to <laughs> talk. About that. I so I don't remember exactly how this happened, but I got to go to an advanced screening of that film in in two thousand one at the Bruin in Westwood, which by the way is the movie theater that Margot Robbie goes to in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to. Uh, to yeah. Um, yeah, the the Matt Helm movie that that she's in. It's that theater. And they had an advanced screening of Ocean's Eleven. This is like way before I was a, a critic or anything. I, I I don't remember how I ended up there, but um, like I remember they gave away popcorn, which I have never had happen at an advanced screening uh, that I've been invited to in a professional capacity. And then at the beginning, when um, Clooney sits down in front of the parole board, and it's just that close up of his face, like I, you know, he just sits right after the Warner Brothers Shield logo, and people applauded, like they just applauded <laughs> Clooney's face <laughs> dropping into. <laughs> Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, all right, let's let's cycle back around to Tom. Uh, what is your next TV pick? Okay, this is absolutely a nostalgia pick, but it is also a banger of a theme song. Uh, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh, yes. Talk yeah. about an earworm. I know. Uh, it is one year it was on my Spotify, like 
top 100 just because it kept coming up for some reason like they tell you the songs that you've listened to too much i was like the scarecrow and mrs king theme what was i doing (laughs) but it hit right in that spot where you know you'd sit down with your family to watch tv and it's easy for everybody to watch it it was i I'm 85% sure it came on after Star Trek The Next Generation on on Channel 50 in Chicago, but Hmm. I'm not 100% sure. Um, It just feels that way. But a little Bruce Boxleitner action for you if you're uh, pre-Babylon 5 time. Um, And it's just, it's it's also a lot of fun. I think that's what we're kind of getting at with all these picks is that the best spy movies are the ones that don't really take themselves super duper duper seriously and are more interested in like messing around with the genre or messing around with your expectations and actually i think that's what the mission impossible films do pretty well too it is mostly action and like bombast but it's also like quintuple crosses that you're like this doesn't make any sense this is too much of a swiss watch to make any sense but i'm really enjoying it like how many times can you double 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 cross the bad guy and i don't remember a ton of towards the end i was actually refreshing my memory when i was before this because i knew i wanted to go with uh scarecrow and mrs king and i realized that i don't remember like the series they got married at the end and they kept and the the blurb on wikipedia was and they kept it a secret from the agency to and i was like i don't remember any of that i remember that they were like flirty and i remember that they like dated kind of and i vaguely remember that they got married but i it's like there's a it then continued on for some time like there were more (laughs) seasons or at least more episodes um so i don't have a really specific memory of like i can't quote you chapter and verse from uh the scarecrow and mrs kingopedia but it's a pick that reminds you of your childhood you know so sure that's where i'm coming from it was it was lighthearted but fun. Yeah, it was a riot. And and it was in that in that stretch in the eighties where, you know, maybe it started with Remington Steel, where you just had uh this whole will they, won't they tension that that wasn't, you know, it wasn't the centerpiece of the show until moonlighting kind of forced the issue. Um but yeah, you had a lot of these pairings where it was just this sort of leitmotif in the background and they had fun adventures and uh good quips uh and yeah that was a great theme song that that song is in my head to this day so okay uh on that note uh chris what is your next tv pick um well i uh you know i love my my lost causes and uh here's one that i did not discover in its time uh, i actually discovered it very recently when it was it's probably gone now because nothing sticks around on streaming, but this was on on uh, Netflix very briefly, a, a beloved uh, network TV series that, that uh, ran from 1980 to 1980, um, starring Tony Award winner Ben Vereen and uh, Jeff Goldblum. Of, you know, not sure if he ever did anything after this, but um, Ten Speed and Brown Shoe was the, the name. Of this uh, show with uh, Goldblum as a accountant, I think, who wanted to be a hard boiled detective and was doing this this you know kind of Raymond Chandler parody narration over um, most episodes, and Vereen as a uh, like he was an ex con who was um, you know kind of doing like uh, 
the kind of shtick that that Eddie Murphy is doing in Beverly Hills Cop, where every time he needs to talk his way into uh, a fancy place, he you know it quickly um, creates a character. And um, I you know again this this show lasted fourteen episodes. This show did not even have the legs that the prisoner had. But um, <laughs> uh, what else can I can I say to to persuade you to uh, locate this if in in the unlikely event that it remains on on Netflix? Um, the the little stinger, the little uh, punctuation is the is a bike bell sound. You know, and the and the bicycle is not even um, like as key a motif the way it is in in the prisoner. The way the the penny farthing bicycle is, a, you know, part of the visual iconography of the prisoner and has this this whole um, symbolic resonance with it, uh, like as the symbol of progress and his progress advancing too quickly. And you know, should we be be um, reconsidering all this this um, surveillance state stuff that uh, was you know in the late sixties seemed very very topical and and now seems very very quaint um but that's that's not uh that's the prisoner that's not 10 speed and brown shoe in which i i, I really can't tell you the significance of the bicycle <laughs> other than you know we need to have two nicknames we need to have two words um and uh i was i was thrilled to to discover this um i hope it's it's still available it is it is available in the shout factory app um, because that's where I found it by accident one day on my Apple TV. And I went, oh, I remember when that aired because I loved it. Um, it's not, not only that, it was created by Stephen Cannell coming off of the Rockford Files. And, you know, before his whole run of the A-Team and Riptide and all that stuff. Uh, so this is Cannell having right. fun. Um, and yeah, oh, it's it's a delightful show. Uh, so yeah, the, find the Shout Factory app, and it's free. It's free in the Shout Factory app. Nathan, what is your next TV pick? So my next TV pick is kind of interesting because when it was good, it was astonishingly good, and when it jumped the shark, it jumped that shark into the stratosphere. And there was only one element of it that never jumped the shark, which, which I'll get to. But I'm talking about J.J. Abrams' Alias. Which, uh, yeah. Now, nowadays, when you think alias, you think <laughs> baby Jennifer Garner in a, a bright red wig kicking people in the head. And yes, that is a, a strong component of it. But <laughs> go back and watch, go back and watch just the pilot. It is, you think Lost had a good pilot. Alias grabs you by the throat from second one and does not let go. Um, alias's whole first season slaps so hard um i mean we were talking about a, a network series that had the chutzpah to for at least the first 13 of its 22 episodes and every single episode on a cliffhanger so that you were dying for the next week to see what would happen next um like 20 something jennifer garner doing most of her own stunts um action scenes done on a tv budget that looked and felt like the movies and just absolutely more heart and more hustle and more style than anything on the air. You had Michael Giacchino who, you know, it's a TV show, so they can't write brand new music every week. But what Michael Giacchino would do is take the same themes and then reorchestrate them in the style of the various countries that the characters were visiting for their various missions. You had a spy show that had like a weird MacGuffin plot involving like ahead of their time future inventions from a guy from the renaissance um you had a jj abrams love of weird red balls that float um 
And you had my favorite part of the series, the one part that never jumped the shark, even when, boy, in those later seasons, did it ever jump the shark. Jack Bristow, the main character's dad, played by Victor Garber. Now, most people know Victor Garber as like the lovable, gentle, kind-hearted soul uh, famous on Broadway. But when I met Victor, Victor Garber, I didn't know any of those things. I was completely unfamiliar with his career on Broadway. So I met Victor Garber as a stone-cold, flinty badass. Jack Bristow <laughs> is, I don't, I can think you can count on one hand the number of times on the show where he cracks a smile. There's a great scene in one of the later episodes where he is assembling a crib as if it is a military operation. Um, at one point, he has to take a guy's eye out with a spork. Um and just the way he says spork dripping with contempt will never leave you once you've heard it. <laughs> but Jack Bristow is one of the most phenomenal badasses ever to grace television. He makes Jack Bauer, another Jack B operating on television at the time, look like a cringing wuss. Um, this is a guy who at the end caps off his, his run on the series by being shot multiple times, getting back up strapping on a, uh, a bandolier full of explosives and blowing himself up to give the middle finger to his arch nemesis. Um, I mean, Victor Garber is phenomenal. He is the one bright spot throughout all five decreasingly good seasons of Alias. But if you watch it, go back and watch those, especially the first season. The first two seasons really are pretty killer stuff. After that, you can safely like pretend that nothing else ever happened and write whatever ending you want. But if you do stick with it, which I do not recommend, you will find yourself clinging to, to Victor Garber like the life preserver that he is. And I love it because now I've seen a lot of other Victor Garber stuff, and I know that he's playing against type, but he's playing against type magnificently. So <laughs> Alias, uh, phenomenal show, at least for its first two seasons, terrible show for its last three. Nathan, you, you just called Victor Garber a life preserver. I, I have to ask you if you did not see Titanic, which was, was going to say. <laughs> oh, my God. Titanic no. is canonically alias. Uh, there's a sequence in the first season, and it's just I think it's in like the opening 10 minutes of the show where the characters are trying to do open heart surgery on a guy in an ambulance to remove a bomb from his chest while in the middle of a car chase. It is the most preposterously <laughs> thrilling thing you've ever seen on television. And it's it's just a thrill. It's like it's Tuesday for that show. Yeah. Yeah. It's not out of the ordinary at all. Well, this, I mean, the story is that like Cruz, you know, binged uh, those those first couple seasons and then hired him away to to make Mission Impossible 3, right? Which I think even yeah. basically has that that sequence that you just cited in it reprised in a, in a helicopter where they're trying to take a like an explosive chip out of someone's brain through their nostril or something while the helicopter is, you know, maneuvering. And, uh, you know, so if it's worth doing once, it's worth doing twice, I guess. So my next TV pick, I think I'm going to go with a series uh, also on Netflix. I hope it's still on Netflix. Uh, Lupin, which is French, uh, based on the books, the original Arsène Lupin books. Uh, or I should say inspired by, because it is set in the present uh, with a Senegalese Frenchman who loves the Arsène Lupin books. Uh, Lupin was a cat burglar. Uh, he was a character roughly at the same time as Sherlock Holmes and occasionally 
uh, his author would steal Sherlock Holmes to stick into stories to have them face off. And Lupin would always get the better of him until Arthur Conan Doyle said, hey, you can't do that. So then all of them are changed to Sherlock Holmes. It's a thing. Copyright theft in the early 1900s. Yay. Um, but but yeah, he's, he's a, a brilliant cat burglar. And so this character is inspired by him. And he finds himself falling into a larger mystery and conspiracy and revenge plot. Uh, and his beloved son is kidnapped at a festival celebrating the character of our son Lupin in the town in which the author lived. Uh, it is a beautiful cliffhanger. Uh, I think it is only about 10 episodes long, uh, but it's, again, it's very clever in how it designs its heists and how it builds its plot line. Um, but I would say, don't listen to the dub, use the subtitles because the voices very much do not match. Um, there it's not a good dub at all, but the subtitling is good. And you can hear if you, if you even know just a smattering of French, you can hear how the actors are, but I mean, they're acting through the dialogue and, and that's part of why the dub sucks. Um, but the show is brilliant. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, all right, let's cycle back around one more time for another round of films with Tom. We're going to discuss the unexpected comedy chops of one Mr. Jason Statham and what counts as remarkable restraint on the part of uh, Paul Feig. And let's talk about Spy from 2015. Um, I think so. The Melissa McCarthy movie that is both as funny as the Get Smart film should have been mm. and a as well-crafted as a comedy spy movie should not be. The run of Melissa McCarthy movies in that period, because that's it's Spy as well as Bridesmaids as well as um, the Ghostbusters and the Heat and the Heat. Thank you. That was oh, actually what I was thinking of. Are just remarkable. Like she has such shocking charisma that you forget about every every time un until you see the next movie that she's in. Because every higher status character. Jason Statham is who I'm thinking of in this one, though Allison Janney in, in as her boss is spectacular as well. She modulates her her status so well with all of those with all those people who are so much more serious than her that when she pulls the rug out from under them by being competent at her job or whatever, it's just it it, it was delightful from from beginning to end. And uh, again, I'm going to harp on the sort of like silly whimsy time, but it's a decent spy plot. It's no stupider than a Bond plot. 
I mean, I remember this this uh, recurring joke where where Statham, Statham makes these elaborate, very specific, weird threats uh, or uh, boasts about yes. what he has done or will do. And I, and it, like, has anyone ever checked this and seen like if Statham over the course of his career has actually done all of these these bizarre specific <laughs> things that he describes? I mean, he made Crank and Crank too, so there's a pretty good chance that yeah, those are on yeah, the checklist. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing I was going to mention about Spy is that for about three four years. They kept talking about how they were going to make a make it into a series, and I can't decide if it's the best thing that happened to that movie that it wasn't it didn't become like a going concern, or the worst thing that we did get more of them. I'm inclined to be happy that it sort of lives on its own rather than the further adventures of Melissa McCarthy, yeah. um, because I think it really had a nice sort of one evening sort of sort of thing. <laughs> on the other hand. I watch basically every actor that was in that movie just hang out as often as I could. Sure. I mean, after Jason Statham saying things like, you know, I once drove a car while I, while on fire, not the car, I was on fire. Um, my second favorite part of that movie is the fact that Rose Byrne's character, her villain character, is actually a character and is actually a person and kind of the sad and lonely and kind of messed up person who, you know, has and this super weird... Mean super mean but has this kind of weird empathetic friendship for, for frenemy ship with melissa mccarthy that that really gives the movie a kind of a depth and a heft, uh, a heft that i liked and we left out jude law as well we just haven't mentioned him right <laughs> as, the, the like, bond stand, as the right? like bond stand in who's like really pretty but not good at his job necessarily like he's just kind of a doofus and I mean the number the number of Bond movies where you actually see Bond get to be clever and figure things out is absolutely dwarfed by the number where he just just bumps into obvious clues or you know people offer them to him and uh, yeah so <laughs> I think that's that's a that is a well taken point is uh, to, there's there's not a lot of evidence um, in the movies anyway about Bond being particularly an all star at his job <laughs> so all right uh, spy excellent choice. Uh, Chris, what is your next film pick? Well, you know, one guy whose um, uh, uh, Byzantine plots really do make sense, really do hold together if you care to to follow them along is is Shane Black. Um, and I'm never going to get the Nice Guys sequel that I that I pine for. But if I think of, you know, all of the the Shane Black uh, Christmas set buddy buddy detective movies as being sort of sequels to, to one another, <laughs> then I can. You know, create a through line from Lethal Weapon to The Last Boy Scout to The Long Kiss Goodnight uh, to The Nice Guys, which is the the one I like the best from from 2016. Another movie that was successful-ish, you know, but um, not not as it should have been. Um, Ryan Gosling and uh, Russell Crowe have great chemistry together as, uh, you know, Gosling is a ex-cop turned private detective in sleazy 1977 Los Angeles. And... Um, Russell Crowe is is like an aspiring. He's not even an aspiring cop. He's an aspiring PI. He's a real thug who, as the the movie opens, is is beating people up for money, but but wants to be better. Wants to to better himself. And and uh, Gosling is the you know the typical fallen man um, that uh, Shane Black likes to to people his his detective movies with uh, widowers or drunks or you know people who have uh, have fallen a, a long way. Um, 
all of this is uh, woven into uh, a, a plot to, about the the auto industry, about uh, Detroit to keep down the catalytic converter or, or something, and the evidence that they're doing this is is hidden in a porn film. Again, it's uh, it's 1977, so we get a little bit of that that boogie nights uh, aspect of when when illicit stuff had to be filmed on celluloid and projected on screens and and uh, could not be consumed in the the privacy of your home. Um, and Angori Rice. This is the first place I saw Angori Rice, um, the the great Australian actor who plays Ryan Gosling's daughter, who basically keeps him semi-functional. I mean, he he is a he is a high-functioning alcoholic in in this film. Um, I think her character is supposed to be twelve years old, but she she drives him around, chauffeurs him because that's that's safer than letting him drive a car um there are there are so many i mean as with every black movie this is highly quotable the the exchanges of dialogue are great but there's also a really wonderful moment of of physical comedy in this um one of many showcases for how how great gosling is at that sort of thing where um russell crowe tracks him down in a men's room and is trying to sort of intimidate him in a bathroom stall and and knocks the door down and gosling is there trying to point a gun at russell crowe but a you know, also trying to pull his pants up and also trying to deal with the cigarette that's dangling out of his his lip. Um, I just, you know, see the nice guys. Come on. This is, uh, (laughs) they're a great duo. I I would happily watch another, another movie about these, these two clowns every, every two years until the end of my, my natural life. And I'll, I'll never, I'll never get to because, um, you know, we're, we're never letting Shane black, uh, back, I guess. Um, you know, people are still mad that that uh, he got four million dollars for the screenplay of The Long Kiss Goodnight or something. And uh, and I agree. I I would love at least another story with those nice guys. Um, yeah. You don't think comedy and Russell Crowe together in the same <laughs> sentence, but he can be tremendously funny. And he is in this movie in a wonderful way. OK, let's go. Let's go to Nathan. What is your next film pick? Well, speaking of mismatched duos, um, I think there's a film out there that that does not get as much love as it deserves. And part of that is probably because both of its leading men have since been outed as varying degrees of unpleasant, shall we say. Um, but Guy Ritchie's The Man from Uncle, um, I had never seen the original television series, but that is a darn entertaining movie. Um, you think of Guy Ritchie as like a... a he he has this reputation as a director who's all flash and no substance, but he doesn't deserve it. And especially in this movie, there's all this amazing stylish camera work, but it is always in clear service of the narrative. There's an incredible sequence where Henry Cavill's Napoleon Solo, suave, dapper man about town, is climbing into a car and casually searching for the keys. He's like rummaging through the car to find that someone has packed a lunch and he's enjoying the lunch. And reflected in the windshield of the car is Army Hammer. Um, yes, he's the guy who apparently wishes he could eat people. Uh, moving on. Um, but he's the the burly, two-fisted Ilya Kuryakin, and he is having a speedboat chase with lots of, lots of explosions that you can follow entirely by watching its reflection in the windshield of the car that Henry Cavill is in. Just one of many incredibly brilliant shots in this movie. And the the movie's cleverness even extends to its awesome theme by, yes, Daniel Pemberton, who emphasizes the differences between the two characters by having the score basically be a fist fight between Lalo Schifrin and Ennio Morricone. Um, (laughs) 
it's fantastic, really entertaining to listen to. Um, the scene in which uh, a pajama-clad Alicia Vikander is dancing out of focus in the background while Army Hammer broods in the foreground is an all-timer. And um, it is just a delightful and fun and entertaining film with a killer cast, um, possibly literally in Army Hammer's case. There's a there's a drive in in Easton, Maryland, and it is a, it is a long way for me here in D.C., but it is worth it because you get um, in the summertime. If your ass can take it, you can see three movies for one admission price. And in the summer of, of 2015, um, they they had on like an all nighter and it was Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, Spy and the Man from Uncle. Oh, wow. All three nice. in one night. And um, <laughs> yeah amazing even just the sequence of the the car chase and the escape from east berlin and it is so cleverly designed and cleverly shot and it's just fun as, as someone who is uh, like famously obsessed with how large henry cavill actually is or is not to the the fact <laughs> that in that opening sequence when um or, or well, the Berlin sequence when uh, Army Hammer is chasing them on foot and they're in the car and they they're all this this these remarks to the effect of how large Army Hammer is and what a beast he is and stuff like is is he is he that much bigger than Henry Cavill? I I need to. I, I think really isn't don't only think so. the Rock bigger than Henry Cavill. <laughs> <laughs> that sequence, Nathan, that you that you cited that that great sequence where Henry Cavill is just taking the snack break while uh, while the the boat chase is happening around him. Um. They ripped that off at the the opening of the second Guardians of the Galaxy, where there's an action scene happening all around Groot, and the camera just stays on Groot while Groot is dancing, and everybody cited it there, and uh, that made me mad because I I thought Man from Uncle did it better, and and certainly did it a couple years earlier. Yeah, yeah. An another good thing about Man from Uncle, Elizabeth Debicki is in it, as she is in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, but whenever Elizabeth Debicki shows up, pay attention. Because she's great, and probably the, the movie you, that she is in is going to be better than you are expecting. Well, speaking of films with problematic leads, um, that I just have to sort of shut my mind off and go, I'm watching a movie. Um, there are there are some artists that I can't quite separate from. This one I haven't tried to watch since, but Mel Gibson in Maverick. Um, which is another film I was not expecting a lot of because fan of the TV show. How are you going to top James Garner? Well, you cast James Garner in the movie and uh, it is, it is a delightful film with a, a script by William Goldman. And it is a classic con artist character from the old West, Brett Maverick. Um, one of the smartest things they do or did when they were marketing it, they're like, well, Mel Gibson is Brett Maverick and James Garner is Sheriff so-and-so. And you assume, oh, okay, they're going to be going up against each other. That makes sense. Uh, and part of the surprise of it is uh, how they are connected. And I won't say how, but it is a worthy successor to the TV series. It is uh, a fun movie it has stupidly wonderful easter egg gags in it and it was uh, you know again it was at at the height of mill gibson as fun leading man uh and this is a fun movie so you know if you can if you could ignore the uh the real world for two hours it is worth a look 
But yeah, both Man from Uncle and Maverick did a really good job catching the spirit and the flavor of it and doing it well. And yet another actor not known for comedy who crushes it, uh, Jodie Foster, is really, really funny in that movie. Yes. Yes. And uh, gives as good as she gets. Right. I need to see that again, because I, I definitely saw it in the theater. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I remember it was one of the many Gibson Dick Donner uh, collaborations, but uh, I, I just I just don't remember it. You know, it's, it's been almost 30 years. Yeah. And, and if you get a chance to see the original TV series, which is hard to find now, uh, you know, everything you know about James Garner, it's there. You know, he's he's a lovable rogue he's charming he doesn't want to fight um but he uh, usually gets the better of everyone so a lot of fun a lot of fun um well let's let's circle back now and just do one quick round of something from any medium you want tv film book comic book podcast radio show tom what would be your first pick I mean, this this can also be a, a bring out your dead round. Yeah, can I just steal a bunch of stuff? Because yeah, we, my the con artist one is the uh, was going to be the underrated Psych. I really, I always really enjoyed oh. Psych, as okay. well. As, and as for another, uh, if you've seen Slow Horses on uh, Apple TV, that's yes. really good, and it feels a lot like um, in America it was called MI Five because in Britain it was called Spooks, mm-hmm. and that's on the list <laughs> yep, yep yep yeah mi5 is great it's one of those shows where it's they, really good yeah they, they don't have the budget to show an explosion they can only imply it the reason i was talking about this as a as a uh as sort of an embarrassment of riches when we started this is because i'm just looking at things that i thought of i mean we didn't talk about get smart we didn't talk about Andor. we could have we didn't talk about the americans or chuck though i don't know why we necessarily would have or eh, no. chuck is <laughs> chuck is not bad chuck has its moments yeah, it, it speaking of has its moments. Homeland is occasionally pretty good as a spy story. Occasionally, it's not as good as a spy story. <laughs> the Jack Ryan series is a great series of movies. Hunt for October, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger, The Sum of All Fears is also a movie. My my favorite Jack Ryan is Tilda Swinton. <laughs> I um, think you mean Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Damn it! Damn it! Again, The Sum of All Tildes. Um. All right, I'm, and that's now I will stop because I just started naming things. <laughs> yeah, Slow Horses is amazing. Slow Horses um, is really good, and they just the second season just started. The just started. the I think the second season might be even better than the first. It, it, it just, just wrapped up, right? It. Yeah, yeah. And that was one that my uh, my eighteen year old was curious about. Um, I wasn't planning to watch it, and he got me into it, and we well, just he, ate it up. You can't let him discover that sort of thing outside the house. I know, right? It's better for him to experience it at home. <laughs> so, all right, Chris, what uh, what would be your bring out the dead? What what have we not mentioned that you want to bring up? You know what? I was said Randall Flag, but that's the villain in the stand, right? No, I I, I want to. Uh, I want to <laughs> yes, in the comic book comic book character, Ruben Flag. Yes, thank you. Um, from Howard Chaikin's uh, American Flag with with two G's. Um, another thing. This was a, a comic started in I think eighty three, and and like Alias, it burned you know brightly but briefly, and uh, kind of 
uh, declined before it uh, eventually ended. But there were at, at least two two solid years of um, Howard Jakin writing and drawing this um, kind of uh, dystopian comedy in the vein of like Brazil. Although Brazil actually followed this by a couple of years. If I'm thinking about this set in, I think, 2032 Chicago uh, after a, a series of ecological and, and political meltdowns have left the, the United States kind of a... a husk of a of a country and um well that's just ridiculous i know i know uh, <laughs> uh much of the the leadership of the the nation i think has uh, relocated to mars um but uh i guess ruben flag uh kind of counts as a as a kind of kind of uh, con artist in a way because he was a an actor um possibly a possibly an actor in adult films i may be inventing that detail but who who was replaced by a you know, a digital uh, replica, uh, a, a sim, and needed to find work, and ended up being a, a Plexus Ranger, sort of like the the marshal, I guess, for the uh, territory of of Chicago in the hellacious 2030s. Um, all right, so so it's kind of a cheat, but um, because this is this is one of the the few comic book properties from that that super fertile uh, 80s period just before uh, Dark Knight and Watchmen and Mouse and and uh, all of that 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 has not been translated to another medium. Um, I'll I'll pick uh, Randall Flag. Nope, Ruben Flag. <laughs> <laughs> from American Flag with two G's by by Howard Shaken, which I think is back in print now. Um, every every time someone someone republishes this, so I buy another edition of this, and the the most recent one is is not that old. So uh, you can you can probably find it. You know, I I hate to actually endorse something that that listeners can can easily lay their hands on if they want to, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm going to American Flag two G's. Great pick, great pick. Um, Nathan, what is what is left on your plate? Well, um, for the Bring Out Your Deads, I've got Leverage. Uh, talk about another show that unfortunately has unfortunate uh, individuals cast within it, but a deeply satisfying show in which uh, con artists take down the ultra-rich, and um, a shocking number of those ultra-rich people are based on real people and real research that the more you look into it, the more frightening the show gets. Um but super fun. There was a recent revival that was kind of a little bit of diminishing returns, but still captured a little of the old magic. Um, the Spy Who Dumped Me. Um, the best performances you will ever see out of, uh, well, the best performance you'll ever see out of Mila Kunis. Uh, a typically wonderful performance by Kate McKinnon. Some really dynamite action because the second unit director is, is an experienced uh, stunt coordinator and, and action helmer and uh, just a really, really fun, unexpectedly funny and really exciting movie uh, that that kind of flew under the radar. But my my for my final pick, I'm going to go a little highbrow here. I'm going to pick The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. Uh, it is a nice. spy novel unlike any you will ever read, and I cannot spoil why, um, <laughs> but you've got to read it. I, I will say that it is a kinder spy novel than you were expecting. And I can't give away anything more than that, but it is the story of a Scotland Yard policeman sent undercover to crack a ring of anarchists. And it starts like a, a cold-blooded thriller and gets stranger and funnier as it goes along um, until it actually loops all the way around and becomes kind of transcendently beautiful. Um, 
it's available in the public domain. Uh, you can probably find it like on, on LibriVox if you want to listen to it in audiobook form or on Project Gutenberg. But it is uh, a really weird, interesting, beautiful novel uh, that takes the spy genre and runs off in a really weird direction with it. And I can't recommend it highly enough. There's a lovely adaptation of it for the stage, actually, by a Chicago playwright named Bilal Dardai. And it is a tremendous piece of work. Yeah, I, I was literally going to say there is a lovely stage adaptation. I got there first. I... Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I, I'm I'm going to stand up for the Orson Welles Mercury Theater on the Air version then, which is which is ah, the one. Yeah, that, oh, yeah. Good I mean, call. you know it's only it's 57 minutes long. So, but I, I don't know Orson Welles personally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I I haven't read the novel. I've only listened to the. I assume heavily abridged, you know, one hour uh, radio play. So I need to correct that oversight. Yeah. Well, well worth a read. Yeah. My, uh, my list is, you know, I mean, I kind of wrote down everything I could think of just in case, cause it's a draft. I'm surprised the prisoner didn't show up, but that's okay. He's free. He's gone. Um, and uh, danger man and secret agent, you know, uh, but they're there. They're there. Uh, again, speaking of problematic leads, I Spy, which was a lovely show in the 60s. Starring and... uh, Bill Culp and um, uh, uh, someone else. Nobody yeah. else. Yeah. Um, one-man show. Just one-man show. Um, the uh, Burn Notice, uh, something that kind of surprised me when it premiered because I wasn't expecting much out of USA Network at the time. And this is a show that really captured... Uh, you know, it's about a spy, but it was really in that that mold of Rockford and Magnum at the same time, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, also from USA, White Collar, which con artist turned uh, FBI and in, informant aid uh, hero, quote unquote, uh, which, you know, is sort of a modern day riff on It Takes a Thief. Also a really good show. And uh, on the con artist side, uh, a TV show, I, I can't remember if it was the BBC or not, uh, but it's a show called Hustle, starring Adrian Lester and Robert Vaughn and Jamie Murray and several other people whose names escape me now. Uh, but it's, it's very much Leverage just before Leverage premiered. It's the same idea. It's uh, thieves targeting people who deserve being targeted. Uh, lovely show and a there's one episode with a terrific Bollywood number which you would never expect at a spy slash con artist show um, and I would say yes uh, uh, Queen and Country by Greg Rucka going back to comic books and uh, and like I said all of the, the John Dortmunder books by Donald Westlake and the Parker books by Richard Stark who was Donald Westlake um, so on that note, um, this was a, a lovely, a lovely gathering. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, Tom McGrath, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And Chris Klimek, thank you. David, delighted, delighted. And Nathan, thank you. Thank you very much. This podcaster will self-destruct in five seconds. <laughs> and so, having once again saved the world with a minimum of spy jinx, we will play the song and roll the credits, but as always, the incomparable will return.